Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me introduce myself. I'm Brant. I'm the associate pastor at the Kitsilano Neighborhood Church. And uh, it's my joy to be here, but can I just say thank you? Uh, thank you that we get to be part of a network of neighborhood churches, and we know that, that you are in support of this awesome opportunity for us out there. Uh, that doesn't escape us. We don't, you know, take for granted that we're part of a group of people throughout the city that are partnering with us in this. We're so excited to be having this opportunity. So thank you very much. Um, it's my joy to be here with you. As we jump into the Word of God this morning, uh, would you pray with me? Let's uh, ask Him to help us as we jump right in. Father, we, uh, we love you. You are a father who gives good gifts to your children. Lord, you have given us Jesus Christ. Lord, how can we not be confident in you and what you are doing? Lord, we ask that you to work this morning through a text of scripture that's a, a challenging text, a hard text, uh, to show us that you are good, that your love endures forever. And Lord, would you shape us to be those who are courageous disciples of Jesus who are willing to suffer as he has suffered. We ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit to, to change our hearts and to cause us to be more faithful witnesses of Jesus in Vancouver and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so what do you expect uh, the Christian life will look like for you? Maybe for this year, for the next five years, maybe the next ten years. What do you expect the Christian life will look like for your kids? I don't know if you've thought about that. What do you expect... The Christian life might look like for your friends or for your family, for neighbors that might convert to Christianity in this city. You know, as we've often said in this series, Jesus has been teaching us in the Beatitudes about the true way of blessing, the true way of flourishing, the true way of happiness. And he's been inviting us in these texts to see reality his way, to conceive of blessing not as we would define it maybe, but as he defines it, to understand happiness not in ourselves, but happiness as, as he defines it, as one of his disciples. And what he said so far, I, I think much of it has been really encouraging. But am I right to say that a lot of it's been really challenging? This has been one of the more challenging uh, sermon series that I've ever been part of. As uh, we look at the Beatitudes and we see, man, this is hard stuff. There's some hard stuff here. It confronts my expectations of what I think it will look like to be a follower of Jesus. It confronts my expectations of what I think blessing would even look like. What flourishing as a human being would even look like. But I don't think any of the things that Jesus has said so far in these Beatitudes even comes close to comparing with Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. We go through these three verses this week and next week. This is difficult stuff here. And I've actually been eyeing these verses up. It's kind of like I'm driving down the highway of the sermon series, and I can see them coming in the distance. And I've been a little bit nervous about it. I've, I've seen them. I'm like, oh, man, I, I kind of would like to avoid those. Maybe we can skip over that passage. Because they don't look like what I want if I'm honest. They don't look like what I expect as one of Jesus' followers in a modern and a Western world. They don't look like that. In Matthew 5 verse 10, Jesus begins to conclude his Beatitudes by telling us that the blessed, flourishing, and happy person is someone who is persecuted. Someone who suffers. Someone who is hated for Jesus' sake. How 
could that possibly be right? How is that in our Bibles? That's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. We're going to try and look at this text and, and dive into it and see how it makes sense as Jesus says it. We're going to jump in right now. That's all I want to say as an introduction. And we're going to look at this text in three points. We're going to look at our persecution. We're going to look at Jesus' persecution. And we're going to look at the glory that we await. So jump in with me right away. Point number one, our persecution from Matthew 5, verse 10. Read that verse with me again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice right away here that Jesus doesn't have just any suffering or any persecution in mind. He's qualified it quite carefully. Did you see that? He says specifically, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. So what does that mean? Well, being persecuted for righteousness' sake is the persecution that comes from aligning yourself with Jesus. The persecution that comes from living his righteousness, not as you and I define it, but as he defines it richly in your life, living it outward in this city. To be clear, this isn't a persecution that comes from being dumb. It's not persecution that comes from being belligerent. This is not Westboro Baptists complaining that they're persecuted. And that's not what we're talking about here. It's not a persecution that comes from aligning yourself really closely with a particular political party. And it's not persecution, on the other hand, that comes from maybe being part of a, a minority social movement or the latest social trend or the latest social movement and being persecuted for that. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, blessed are the persecution. He's talking about the persecution that comes from being a follower of Jesus. But I want you to stop here and consider with me, because if you've been following along so far in the Beatitudes, looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this might surprise you. Because the Beatitudes seem to describe pretty awesome people. I mean, how would they be persecuted? Like, I, I'd like those kinds of people to be my neighbors, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, they're, they're humble, poor in spirit people. I, I need more of those in my life. These are people who are grieved by the things that are wrong in this world. That's good. They have a great conscience of, of what's right and wrong. They're meek, they're gentle, they're kind. They stand up for what is righteous. They hunger and thirst to be more righteous, to do what's right in this world. They're pure in heart. They are peacemakers. They, they bring people together. They don't separate people. They bring them together. They reconcile. That sounds pretty awesome. But weirdly, Jesus says that they're persecuted. What's going on here? Why are they persecuted? Doesn't seem to make sense. Well, they're persecuted, make no mistake, because of their particular commitment to obey and submit to the authority of King Jesus in their lives. Their commitment to the authority of King Jesus in their lives. Think about it this way. When Jesus was born, there's a man named Herod, right? He's, he's the king of the region when he was born. And he heard these prophecies that there is a king that was going to come into the region and be born. And so he found out about him and he felt threatened because he understood that, you know, his, his throne was only so wide and so deep and could only fit one person. And another king coming to town meant that his kingdom was threatened. And he did everything that he could to try to get rid of Jesus. And in a similar way, when we commit to following Jesus in our lives, we are witnesses to him as the king over all. And that's threatening to those around us. If Jesus is a king, that means that you're not. If Jesus is a king, that means that he defines what is right and you don't. If Jesus is a king, that means that you answer to him with what your life looks like and the decisions that you make. 
not the other way around. And as Christians submit to that rule of Jesus as king in their lives, they actually become these, these beacons, these torches, these, these lampposts that, that represent the righteousness and the goodness and the light of Jesus in this world. They show what his particular kingdom looks like, what his authority looks like, what his character is like in a world that John's pretty clear in his gospel in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, in a world that's hostile to that righteousness. It's hostile to the character of the good and loving king. Look at John 3, 19 to 20. The world is not neutral towards Jesus. This passage says the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. The, the light, the goodness of God, the character of God, all that we need from God, it's come into the world and it's seen in Jesus. And people, this text says, love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. The Bible's teaching here, I think, is pretty shocking. The, the, the shocking teaching of the Bible here is that despite all the protests to the contrary, this world does not like Jesus. This world and he, us, naturally, in our own hearts, are not disposed to submit to and love him and his goodness we're disposed to hate him, to hide from his light, to reject it. It's the teaching of the Bible. And because of that, Jesus' followers who represent his rule, who represent his character, who are committed to obeying his authority, the Bible promises time and again that they will be persecuted. From the very beginning of Christianity, this has been true. I don't know if you know this, but 10 of the first 12 disciples of Jesus, those men we call the apostles, 10 of the 12, except for, uh, um, except for Judas who betrayed Jesus and John, 10 of them were killed. 10 of them were killed for following Jesus. And John was exiled to Patmos, an island. And subsequent Christian history has been populated with testimony of those who've been persecuted and who've been killed since then and continuing to today for Jesus' sake. I want to take a moment with you now to look at actually a historical text. There's one text in particular from the 3rd century called The Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. This is a 3rd century document, and it's a reliable account that's taken from the diary of a 22nd-year-old woman named Perpetua. It was later added to uh, by editors who kind of came in and saw, and saw the rest of the story, because obviously she couldn't keep a diary of her actual execution. Uh, but it's a reliable witness to their lives. And she was a woman, so she was a new convert to Jesus, and she converted along with some others, and she started to follow him, and she was catechized in what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. She was discipled. And as she was being discipled with a group of other Christians, they were arrested. They were imprisoned. And they were condemned to be executed because they would not worship the emperor's deities. Because they were faithful witnesses to Jesus. Perpetua and Felicitas, they were both young moms. They both had infant children. They handed their kids off to their families as they went to be executed. Charles E. Moore, he loosely translates part of this account as follows. As they were led past the procurator who had condemned them, the Christians called out, You have judged us, but God will judge you. Because of this impertinence, the crowd demanded the Christians be scourged before the wild animals were released. A bear, a leopard, and a wild boar were selected to face the men. The bear and the leopard attacked Saturninus and Revocatus. 
Satyrus was taken out alone and tied to the ground near the bear, but the bear would not emerge from its den. Instead, the leopard inflicted the fatal blow with a single bite. The two young mothers, Perpetua and Felicitas, were stripped naked and given nets to wear. Then they were thrown into the arena with a wild bull. Yet while the animal trampled and kicked at them, Perpetua seemed unconcerned with the brutal animal, carefully binding up her disheveled hair in order to meet death with as much dignity as possible. After they had been brutalized by the animals, the surviving Christians were gathered together. They gave each other the kiss of peace one last time. Then each of them was stabbed with a sword. But Perpetua, stabbed between the ribs by a novice gladiator whose hand was shaking, did not die. She cried out loudly, grabbed the gladiator's sword, and brought the blade to her own throat. In this way, she embraced her death. Perpetua and her friends, they lived in a world that could not stand to have an authority that was greater than the Roman emperor. They lived in a world that could not stand to have a righteousness that was greater than the righteousness that they wanted the way that they saw fit. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And though she was a young Christian, Perpetua would not deny Jesus. She would not deny Jesus. And she died for it. And the year was 203 AD. You know, since then, countless men and women have been beaten, mocked, harangued, accused, burned at the stake, beheaded, imprisoned, tortured, and maimed all over the world because of their commitment to follow Jesus. And it's still happening today. We only have to look over to China to see the way that it's happening right now, where Christians are suffering for their faith in Jesus. They're being persecuted for it. Churches are being torn down. Pastors are being imprisoned. Christians are even being tortured currently in China for their faith in Jesus. But it's not just China. It's not like there's only one spot in the world where this happens. I once was in India not too long ago, a couple years ago. And while I was there, I got to talk with a pastor named Uncle Raleigh. I love this man. It's great talking with him and seeing his church and the way the Lord was blessing him. But he talked about the way that, that in his city, in Lucknow, when he was a young man, when he was first a convert to Christianity, he would go regularly and he'd evangelize. But as he was evangelizing, the crowds would kind of catch wind of what he was doing, and they would drag him out and they opened and they'd beat him. And he'd come back the next week. And he'd come back the next week, testifying to Jesus. Someone I know really, really well, I can't say who it is and I can't say where he is. He just told me last month that in his work as a missionary for Jesus, one of the young men that he's discipling was just imprisoned. He was just thrown in jail because he's learning about Jesus. There's a pastor that I visited uh, a number of years ago, um, somewhere in the Middle East. Again, I can't say where, but he described the way that there's a man in his congregation who travels 12 hours one way to come and worship with Christians. He's already been caught with a Bible once in his hometown. The authorities know about it, and they said, if you're caught again with that Bible, we will behead you publicly. There's more than this, though. There's more than this, though. I no, uh, a seminary professor, one of my old professors at seminary, he was a missionary in Uzbekistan. And while he was there, he saw the church grow, people come to faith, but he saw fellow missionaries murdered. And he saw, he saw recent converts to Christ, Jesus, murdered by their families for making a commitment to follow Jesus. You know, none of this is surprising to Jesus. None of this is surprising to Jesus. He said to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 22, he said, you will be hated by all for my namesake. 
And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These are hard passages, aren't they? Are those tough passages? Is that just me? These are, these are tough. If I'm honest with you this morning, if I'm frank, I wish that Jesus hadn't said them. I wish that Paul hadn't written those words. And when I, when I hear these words, I kind of think in my head, I'm like, well, Jesus, surely you don't mean hated. That's a bit strong. And surely you don't mean persecuted. And besides, Jesus, I don't know if you really know me. I'm pretty likable. I, I, I'm a really friendly guy. I'm good at getting people to like me. It's not going to go that way for me, Jesus. I won't be hated and I won't be persecuted. But if, but if you love and serve Jesus with all your heart in the way that this text describes, no matter how eager you are to be kind and friendly with those around you, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. In Vancouver, no one's going to stone you to death. Praise God. Praise God. No one's going to beat us. Praise God. But that's not the only kind of persecution that there is. There's a lot of other persecution besides physical persecution. In Vancouver, there's more of this insidious sort of persecution that, that pushes us in our Christian faith further and further into the margins. It's kind of this, this persecution that says, hey, look, you can worship and serve Jesus, that's fine, but do it in your bedroom. And make sure you don't bring any of the controversial that he, things that he says out into the public sphere. Keep them hidden. Keep them quiet. Don't bring them out. Talk about his love all you want, but do it in a generic way, in a way that's not threatening to us. See, public commitment to Jesus, even in this city, it will lead to persecution. It's just not the physical kind. You know, I was talking to a doctor this week about this, and um, we were chatting about this, and we are discussing the way that if you're a medical student, for example, right now in this city, or if you're a physician, there are very terrifying implications for you if you stand up for Jesus' ethics. If you take a stand with the right of life for those that aren't born, if you oppose abortion, if you stand as someone who says, no, I'm not going to take part in assisted suicide. If you say, no, I'm going to stand up for the way that God has defined what a man and a woman is. Any of those things are liable to get you fired in Vancouver. It's not just that. For all of us, what would happen if we defended a, a verse in the Bible like Acts 4.12? What if we defended that publicly? This verse says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What would happen if you defended that verse and spoke about it freely with your neighbors, with your coworkers? You spoke about it loudly enough at the coffee shop for the person next to you to overhear. What would happen if you stood boldly and publicly for the cause of missionaries that have been sent for the cause of explicitly bringing people who don't know about Jesus yet and helping them come to know the good news of the grace of God that is for us in Jesus. We live in a post-imperial age that's afraid of anything that sounds like imperialism. It's not going to be love that you are for this witness for Christ. What would happen if you respectively and winsomely were vocal about the Bible's views about human sexuality? How would that be received? You know, social pressure is everywhere trying to mock and cajole and push real faithful commitments to Jesus further and further and further into the margins. Only this week, actually, I learned about a, a researcher at the Kitts Neighborhood Church. And she, last week, in her lunchroom, as a, as a researcher, was publicly ridiculed for her faith in Christ. 
It was a seek and destroy mission. Someone came in looking for ways to find the Christians and to ridicule them. Given all of this, it's really a wonder that Jesus has any followers at all, isn't it? And I think you look around the streets of Vancouver, you look at our advertising, and you look at, you know, what's flourishing here, and you wonder, maybe I should have been a Buddhist, right? That seems like there's, a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of positivity there, right? I wouldn't have been hated so much. Well, praise God, Jesus didn't just speak about persecution, though, because Jesus says, in this verse, again, look at, it, look at it with me once more, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for a reason, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Bible has this brazen confidence that no matter how bad the persecution gets, no matter how bad the persecution is as a follower of Jesus, that it's worth it. That it's worth it. The Bible's confident about that. It never backs down from that claim. It's worth it. The Bible's not despairing in the midst of persecution. It's hope-filled. How could that possibly be the case? Because it's what we see in Jesus' life. It's because Jesus was persecuted and he was glorified. To see what I'm talking about, let's look together at our second point, Jesus' persecution. How was Jesus persecuted? Well, he was persecuted perfectly. Despite his innocence, he was persecuted more than you and I ever will be. He was loyal and faithful and endured in hope of what his father had promised in righteousness until the end. And he suffered innocently more than you and I ever would. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of the God who made us. It's the God who loves us. The God who desires to bring us all into a relationship with himself to experience the joy and the blessing that we were made for. He wants good things for us. But despite every good thing that he's given to us and everything good that he's offered to us for our salvation, the Bible story is a story of you and I rejecting him. It's a story of us consistently hating his righteousness, hiding from his light, consistently doubting his love for us, doubting that he has good things in mind when he tells us about his righteousness. It's a story of us consistently withholding thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. It's a story of us consistently placing ourselves at the center of our lives and the center of this universe when the only person who's worthy of that place is God. And yet, despite our rejection of him, what did King Jesus do? Well, I mean, he could have come here in all his authority and power as God and subjugated us to himself. He could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't. He came to us in his weakness, in his humility, and his love. He lived the Beatitudes. But despite that, John 1 verse 11 says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He was betrayed with a kiss, falsely accused, mocked, spit upon, beaten, Whipped to the skin, peeled back, and his muscles were ripped open. He was crowned with thorns. He was forced to carry his cross. He was exposed in his shame and his filth, nailed to a cross and hoisted up in his naked misery for all to see. He was despised and he was ridiculed. Men and women passing by Jesus on the cross would literally have hid their faces from looking at him. And he died. 
Why? So that you and I could be freed. So that you and I could be forgiven our rebellion against him. So that you and I could be loved by the God of the universe, by King Jesus. And even though he was persecuted and killed, the good news is that the story didn't end there. The story ends in glory and exaltation. Would you look at Philippians 2, verses 7 to 11 with me? This passage says this, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the logic of this passage? Look at verse 9. Do you see the way that it starts with that word, therefore? Jesus was exalted and glorified because he faithfully endured suffering and was persecuted. Jesus will forever, he'll forever receive blessing and honor and praise and adoration as the king of all kings, as the ruler of all rulers, as the God of all gods because of his suffering and his persecuted death on the cross. Jesus' victory is through his cross. Because through the cross, our sin is forgiven. Because through the cross, we're reconciled to God as his children. Because through the cross, the power of sin that's rooted so deep in our hearts, the sin that you feel today that you're enslaved to, you can be freed of it because of Jesus' victory through the cross. Through the cross, you and I and the, the accusations that are against us that Satan uses to discourage us, Maybe you came in here this morning and you feel just so discouraged. Who am I? I'm not good enough. Through the cross, those accusations are rendered moot. As Jesus says, this one is good enough because I've died for them. They are righteous because I've made them righteous. Through the cross, our shame is taken from us and it's destroyed forever. The shame that we feel so poignantly about our sin, it's gone, removed through the bloodshed on the cross. Through the cross, the violence of this world's rebellion against God, it's revealed in its ugliness. It's shown forth to be what it is in contrast with the beauty and the glory of his love. Through the cross, Jesus ascends to receive his crown. This is why John, in the book of Revelation, this is why he describes the adoration of heaven poured out for Jesus with the cross as a central point. Look at Revelation 5, verses 9 to 10 with me. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Bible can be so confident and hopeful, even in the midst of the most brutal persecution, because Jesus was persecuted and he was glorified for it. We are blessed in our persecution because Jesus is the king who reigns in victory through his cross. And here then is the promise for us. Look at 2 Timothy 2 verse 12. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Let's turn to our third point now, the glory that we await. Notice how verse 10 ends. Verse 10 ends, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've seen that before. I don't know if you noticed, but way back at the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, that verse also ended with, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes begin and they end, kind of hemmed in on either side with this promise about the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Well, it's the case because the kingdom is the goal and the end that the whole Sermon on the Mount is aimed at. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his disciples what it means to be faithful citizens of his kingdom. And then here at the end when it's talking about persecution, it's the kingdom that's held forth as the hope that persecuted Christians can hold on to, can long for, can anticipate, can endure in hope of. It's the hope of the kingdom. That's pretty important. So we better understand then what is the kingdom of heaven? What, what is it? Well, on the one hand, this kingdom of heaven idea is the idea of you and I today learning to walk with Jesus as our king. It's us being filled with his Holy Spirit. It's us growing in his likeness here on earth as we submit to the ruler of all rulers, Jesus Christ, who's enthroned right now. But it's so much more than that. Because praise God, Jesus is coming back. The whole gospel of Matthew, the whole Bible screams about, talks about not just Jesus who came, but the Jesus who is coming again and who will bring with him the fullness of his kingdom when he returns. And when he returns... When he returns, this world will finally be submitted to and rightly ordered under the good and the loving authority of King Jesus. When he returns, every temporary and flawed and sinful kingdom of earth will be ended. The righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will be judged. When he returns, you and I will be finally freed from death and from disease and from sin. Praise God. And we'll be made to be like Jesus. You won't have to fight anymore. We fully like him, brought into his presence forever. And best of all, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that when Jesus returns, we'll be with him. We will be home with our Savior King. His presence will never leave us. God Most High will be with us, and his eternal love will be for us, comforting us, present with us, wiping away every tear that we have cried while we endured in the hope of his coming. This is the promise of the kingdom of heaven. It's a future promise. It's a future hope. Christians are a profoundly future-oriented people. Your life here on earth is short. You're going to die soon. Eternity is long. And the joy of being with Jesus is amazing. It's this kingdom that's again and again and again throughout the Bible that's presented to us as the hope that we're called to live in light of. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says this. And Peter, I don't know if you know much about 1 Peter, but this is a letter that was written to persecuted Christians. And in that letter, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully, completely, absolutely on the future coming of Jesus. You know, in every century since Jesus first walked this earth, Christians have lived with their hope fixed on Jesus coming and his kingdom. They've loved, they've given to others, they've witnessed, they've cared for the oppressed, they've pleaded with their friends and their families, their co-workers, their neighbors to be reconciled with Jesus. They've represented his righteousness to others, they've cared for the hurting and the oppressed, and they've suffered for it. 
but they suffer for it in hope of something that's so much better. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to share another early Christian document with you because there's this amazing letter written by a Christian man in the second century as well. And this Christian man, he wrote to his friend named Diognetus. And to his friend Diognetus, he wanted to show him what it was like to be a Christian because his friend was interested. And he has this incredible description of all that we're talking about right now, about the, the hope that Christians have and the way that they live their life, uh, hoping and trusting in Christ. In that letter, uh, this unknown Christian writes to Diognetus this way. He says, Christians pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Christians serve King Jesus, who has conquered through the blood of his cross. They serve Jesus who is victorious through his meekness. They serve Jesus who rules in his humility. They serve Jesus who has promised us his kingdom. And now it's our joy to witness to him, to join him in suffering for his sake. You know, we have something so much better that's offered to us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 is this profound verse. And, and in this verse, Paul seems to scoff at all that we might suffer now in comparison with the future weight of glory we have. Look at this verse. For this light, momentary affliction, I'm sure it didn't feel like that to those Christians. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. As we conclude this morning, look again at Matthew 5.10 one last time. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, in this passage, Jesus invites us to share with him in his suffering. Christ City, how are we going to respond to that? I've already been honest with you. I'll be honest with you again. I, I wish Jesus hadn't written these words. I don't want to be persecuted. I want to be liked. So much of my life is lived according to the lines of that cheap trick song from the 70s. Uh, I need you to need me, or I want you to want me, I'd love you to love me. You know, this kind of orientation in my heart is that I sure would like all these people around me to be my friends. That'd be great. I don't want this other stuff that you're talking about, Jesus. But brothers and sisters, that's a huge problem in my life. It's something I have to repent of. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now I'm worried about this, Christ City. 
Now, the reason I've been quoting different ancient sources today is that I think that we've lost some perspective in our church in the West. So many before us, they've boldly suffered the loss of everything because their hope was in Jesus. And on the other hand, here are you and I, and I think so many times in our lives, it's like we don't do anything and we won't say anything that might, that might attract criticism or rejection or persecution. Greater faithfulness to Jesus, it will result in greater opposition from this world. I promise you that. Jesus' words here, they call us to honestly look at our lives, to examine inwardly, whose kingdom am I living for anyway? Am I living for my own kingdom and the kingdom of this world? They won't persecute me at all? Or am I living for, am I living for the kingdom of Jesus? Am I standing with him and his righteousness? Where am I at? Who will I serve? Can I encourage you this morning? Can I challenge you and call you to live richly in faith in Jesus Christ? Don't be afraid of persecution. Love Jesus. But I encourage you, I want to encourage you to delight in Jesus more than you ever have, to, to pray with me as a church that he would cause us to see his love, to know his goodness, to know his character more than we ever have before, so that we would never shy away from sharing it with someone else. We delight in it. Jesus is worth it. His kingdom is far better than anything you might lose, anything that you might suffer for serving him. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.